What? Don't let go! Previously on Blockbuster. Get the bikes! Hey! Dad's gonna kill me. James Francis! I'm getting what you asked for. No, you are not, Jim. This is not working out. James Cameron. What? Me? No, 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 no. Come on. God damn it. Uh, come on, Jim. This is a dream you had? That's not really a story. I want to direct it. You? Listen, it's a bad idea, okay? It's time to look for another career. Dad, I... I know you think I'm making a mistake, film business but I need to see this through. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. Oh man, thanks for getting these tickets. This is going to be so far out. Megan, Megan, we're over here. Oh, Memorial Megan, Day Megan. weekend, 1977. Just days ago, a dejected George Lucas sat in a diner on Hollywood Boulevard, unaware his film Star Wars was playing across the street at the Chinese theater and 22-year-old James Cameron and his friends had come to that theater to see the film. Today, among those lined up along the Hollywood Walk of Fame is an up-and-coming English director, Ridley Scott. This is unbelievable for a matinee. Look at these costumes. I suppose they're characters in the film? I have to assume so. Ridley was here with his producer, David Putnam, who'd scored tickets to a sold-out 2 o'clock screening. Ridley had just premiered his first film, The Duelists, at the Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for the festival's grand prize. Gentlemen, tickets. He was riding high, and before screening his film in Los Angeles, he had a few hours to see this sure-to-be campy Star Wars movie that was causing such a stir. Oh, right there. Those seats in the middle. As everyone filled into the theater, Ridley and his producer got the perfect seats, eighth row center. This auditorium felt alive, like an enormous roller coaster ride. From the first frames of the film's enormous space cruiser in the beginning of the film, to the final throne room scene as John Williams' music swelled and the end credits rolled. The theater shook with energy. Ridley had never seen or felt audience participation like this. He took note of the first credit written and directed by George Lucas. I don't know who George Lucas is, but fuck George Lucas. Ridley joked, but he was miserable with envy. He knew this George Lucas had changed everything. The special effects were unparalleled, the music emotional, and this world felt both nostalgic and like a giant leap forward. Ridley had already decided on his next film, but the future had changed. When producers at Brandywine Productions floated a script for a horror movie set in space, Ridley accepted immediately. That film, Alien, would become the gold standard for science fiction horror. And on opening night, May 25, 1979, Ridley Scott's film would terrify three young friends from Orange County, California. God! Holy shit, Randy. One of them, 24-year-old James Cameron. This is Blockbuster.
The Story of James Cameron. Episode 4. Stocks ended lower today on reports of runaway inflation, punishing the pocketbooks of many Americans. Summer 1982. James Cameron had been fired from his first directing job and had no savings. In fact, he was living out of a change jar, stretching every penny. James was crashing at the tiny little Pomona home of Randy Frakes when the 1982 recession hit. Unemployment remains at 11% in the United States, the highest rate since the Great Depression, and with no end in sight. He landed a few small sketching and painting gigs, including making the original poster for Piranha 2, the film that had fired him but was still using his name as director. The money wasn't enough. His next idea, this movie, The Terminator, would have to work. Yes, is Gail in? It's Jim Cameron. The one thing James did have was a small network of talented friends he'd met from his Roger Corman days. Hello, Jim Cameron. <laughs> Gail! I wasn't sure I'd ever hear from you again. I could say the same about you. How's the new company? Gail Ann Hurd had left New World Pictures to start Pacific Western Productions. She'd heard James was back and working on something special, and sure enough, she loved the story he was pitching her. So what do you think? Jim... Really great potential here. It's technological, but sort of like a noir film. Ah, tech noir. Yes, yes, that's perfect. Tech noir. We'll use that somewhere. Do you have a director in mind? Yeah, me. Oh, uh, but don't you... It's It's got to be me or it won't be done right. James didn't want another Piranha 2 situation. That's going to be a much tougher sell to an investor. I know, I know, but it's the only way. Gail recognized James' potential, but also knew a bad economy would make finding a financier especially difficult. And this movie would need several million dollars to pull off right. But they struck a deal, at least a symbolic one. James sold Gail's company the rights to produce the film for one dollar, under the condition that he and only he would be allowed to direct it. If it worked, this would be a huge leap for both of their careers. All right, here's your term sheet. I don't suppose you'd do it for two dollars? Actually, I'm having second thoughts. Okay, okay. One dollar is fine. Uh, perfectly fine. Go ahead. Sign here. Your turn. <sighs> there it is. Congratulations. Writer-director James Cameron. <laughs> Producer Gail Ann Hurd, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. Your check should arrive in six to eight business days. <laughs> well, then I'll wait on buying the Ferrari. The next few months, Gail spent sending out James' script to studios, and there was immediate interest. Paramount Pictures even made an offer, $450,000, an extremely generous amount for the time. But there was a catch. They refused to let James direct it. Randy encouraged James to take the risk. I... I don't know if you should take the money. It's a lot of money. I mean, it's more than I've ever seen. It is, and it's a great offer, but it's worth so much more if it launches your career as a director, too. And if you make it the way you can... It'll lead to millions down the road, you know? Someone would bite, but every subsequent studio turned them down. Finally, Gail found someone willing to hear them out, a small company in London called Hemdale Pictures, which wanted to meet in person. She and James gathered their storyboards and knew they'd have to make a spectacular first impression. That's when James came up with an aggressive strategy, recruiting his actor friend Lance Henriksen for Piranha 2. You want me to do what? 
Their pitch meeting in London would be something Hemdale Pictures would never forget. Hemdale Pictures, can I help you? December 1982, London. Uh, hold one moment, please. <laughs> Did you hear that? Is that someone at the door? It's open. <laughs> Bloody hell! A dark figure had broken the door off its hinges, exposing the bare doorframe and kicking up dust lit up by the fluorescent lights above. What's going on? Hemdale producer John Daly rushed in to see a man standing in the center of the doorframe, wearing a black leather jacket, a ripped t-shirt underneath, and tall black boots. Uh, sir? What do we do? The man walked forward, slowly. Sir? And, uh, we're calling the police. Sir, stop! Don't move! The man stopped. He had lacerations on his face and gold foil on his teeth. His expression was cold and unflinching. Slowly, he turned his head 90 degrees to the right, took two steps, and sat down in the chair in Hemdale's front lobby, looking straight ahead. Sir, ah! Uh... What is he doing? He's just staring. Is someone calling the police? What do we do? Is he okay? Look at the cuts on his face. Sir, this is a place of business. You, you can't be here. The man didn't move. Is he on drugs? Oh, thank God, the police! Hey. James and Gail entered the room carrying portfolios with pitch materials and were greeted by the panicked faces of the receptionist and producer John Daly. <laughs> Everyone okay? Who are you? I'm Jim Cameron. This is producer Galen Hurd. Hello. We have a meeting at 10 a.m.? Oh, yes, of course. I, I'm very sorry. We've just had a very, a very strange... I see you've already met the Terminator. It was brilliant. Pitch-perfect performance art. Lance Henriksen turned at them and smiled. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to have startled you. We'll, have, we'll of course pay for the door. <laughs> in the meeting, John Daly saw a rising star in James, impressed by his passion and detailed drawings. Hemdale Pictures would partner with Orion Pictures and HBO. The Terminator was greenlit, with the provision that James hire an actor relatively well-known to anchor the film, and suddenly all James' work began to pay off. He got his first paycheck for writing the script, alleviating the financial pressures. He and Bill Wisher rented an apartment together as they began to search for their perfect cast. The executives at Hemdale and Orion made it clear they wanted James to cast someone larger than life in the film, whatever that meant. Australian actor Mel Gibson of Mad Max turned down the film. James Cameron? Who's James Cameron? And then Rocky star Sylvester Stallone. I don't know if I want to play a robot, you know? As well as Indiana Jones star Harrison Ford. Listen, I don't really know this guy James Cameron. The movie could be great, but could also be a total mess. They were striking out. James still thought Lance Henriksen was perfect for the role, but the executives kept floating new names. One of them was football star turned actor O.J. Simpson. They even commissioned a mock-up poster of his face as the Terminator, but soon after scrapped the idea because Simpson was too likable. No one could ever think of him as a cold-blooded killer. 
It was looking like Lance would be the Terminator after all, but they asked to try one other actor opposite him as the good guy in the film, Kyle Reese. Hey Jim, it's Mike Medavoy and Orion. Listen, I was just at a screening last night with an actor named Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a bodybuilder and just did his first movie last year, Conan the Barbarian, I don't know if you saw it. Anyway, I, uh, I told him you were looking at OJ and he wants to meet you. I think he might be the right fit to play the good guy. Okay, give me a call, set up lunch. James wasn't a fan of any executive telling him how to cast his movie, but he knew he had to play the political game, and he came up with a plan. He'd take the meeting with Arnold, but pick a fight with him over something small so the actor wouldn't want to work with him on the movie. Mr. Cameron. Arnold, nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. Arnold was a former Mr. Universe bodybuilder and was built like an ox. Even his handshake was intimidating. He wore a collared polo shirt that looked like it was about to tear at the seams around the sleeves, his arms like the trunks of oak trees. As they sat down for lunch, he made the plates and silverware in front of him look inadequate and tiny. I gotta say, somehow you're even bigger in real life than on the big screen. <laughs> well, I have been working out. Huh, you don't say. Well, this is a joke, but actually I tell you it's true, you know. Uh, the director of Conan, John Milius, he said, Arnold, you're too big. Barbarians, they're not like this. They're not ripped. They're just big guys, you know, and I, I just I just won Mr. Olympia before that. So he said to me, just eat normally, don't diet, and don't bulk up. You're kidding. Yes. So that was you out of shape. I was so sickly, you know, <laughs> puny. But I look big in the movies still. And you know what they say, the camera adds 75 pounds. <laughs> Arnold was charming, more so than James expected. The thing now is I don't want to just be the Conan guy. Typecast fantasy epic movies. You know, it's why I like your movies so much. It's modern, you know, big action. So I like the Kyle Reese character. Oh, so you, you read the script? Yeah, it's a great story, very unique. I only wish that, you know, it had more lines for the Kyle Reese. Huh. 128. <laughs> you, you counted them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's to make room for the action. You, the, the, the great thing is the way we use lights and set design. We, we, we can make it look like a $20 million production. I will say this. Whoever you get to be the Terminator, the heavy, he needs to be trained that way. Oh, yeah. The right way. Absolutely. You know, if it's O.J. Simpson or whoever, people will see that it's O.J. Simpson. No, he has to be like a machine, you know? Be able to reload his weapon without even looking at it. He just knows it like a robot, yeah. No, no, no wasted energy. Exactly. And if it's really a machine, he won't blink when he shoots because that is too human. Yeah. Oh, I like yeah. that. And, and when he kills, you know, there will be absolutely no expression on his face. Not joy, not victory, not anything. Suddenly, James had the spark of an idea. His blue eyes seemed to light up, but he tried to keep his reaction contained. Arnold, I wonder, why don't you play Terminator? Oh, no, 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 no. You understand him so well. It's exactly what we need. <laughs> no, Jim. I counted the amount of lines this guy has. You know, it's 27 lines. I'm not gonna go backwards. I want to be the leading man. I'll make him the leading man. It's called The Terminator. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Listen, would you, you humor me for, for five minutes? I, I want to sketch you. You want a sketch? 
Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of my own sketches for this, and, and the lighting is just perfect. It'll only take me a minute. James quickly etched in pencil, geometric shapes, Arnold's square brow, chiseled jaw, and angular chin. Gentlemen, here's your check. Whenever you're ready. Oh, great, I've got that. Uh-oh. James frantically searched his pockets for his wallet. He didn't have it. Ha <laughs> ha, he's just kidding. Oh. <laughs> Funny guy. No, I, I, I really think I don't have it. You're serious? Yeah. Uh. Don't worry, I got this. No problemo. It was embarrassing. An unprofessional end to a friendly meeting. In Hollywood, the actor never pays for lunch. But Arnold didn't mind. He pulled out his wallet and paid, and the two moved past it quickly. Thanks again, Arnold. We'll be in touch. Again, you know, it's such a pleasure. Maybe we ride the motorcycle sometimes. That'd be great, actually. We will do it. When James finished his illustration, it was dark and ominous. He'd drawn portraits before, but Arnold's look was different, like a different species with rugged but expressive features. His idea was to fully paint Arnold's portrait with his face on the right side and the robot skeleton's face on the left. James painted a dark leather jacket, and in front of his body, Arnold cradled the silhouette of a pistol. Trigger pulled back, ready to shoot. He sent it by courier to Arnold's house with a note asking if he was now interested in playing the Terminator. Arnold immediately called his agent. He was in. The rest of the cast fell into place. Michael Bean as Kyle Reese, Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor, and James fulfilled his promise of roles to Lance Hendrickson and Bill Wisher as well. They'd both have speaking roles as police officers in the film. They'd begin filming in spring 1983. The Terminator was a go. Over the next few months, James and his whip-smart producer Gale, helping him make his movie, became each other's most trusted allies, and something more began to form. Hey, Gail, uh, what are you up to this weekend? Got a few scripts to read. How about you? You want to drive out to the desert, you know, race some motorcycles, build a little campsite? Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Great! It turns out Gail, just like James, was an adrenaline junkie. Ready? Set? Go! Hey! <laughs> They began spending more time together, between James' apartment and Gail's house in the Hollywood Hills. James was storyboarding every single shot of his upcoming film, with Gail by his side offering detailed feedback. What do you think of this expression on his face? That's fantastic. I love it. It's intense. Maybe it could be a little more angry, you know? Staring us down. Oh, yeah, I like that. A romance continued to grow as they went ice skating and horseback riding and would drive out to Malibu after a long day of working together for dinner on the beach. Shall we finish the bottle? It'd be a waste not to. James' personal and professional lives were converging and he felt everything was looking up. To the future. To our future. January 1983. James was putting finishing touches on a detailed storyboard with filming two months away. He'd sketched every shot in the film so he could focus his time on set with the crew and actors. 
Hello? Hey, Jim. Hey there. I... I have some really bad news. Uh, is everything okay? I just got off the phone with Dino De Laurentiis. That was a name everyone who was in Hollywood for more than a minute knew. Dino De Laurentiis was one of the most successful producers in Hollywood, having made hundreds of films over the past three decades. Yeah, well, as you know, they're making a sequel to Conan the Barbarian with Arnold. Yeah, but not for like eight months. Nine months. Nine months. So what's the problem? Well, they sent me a clause in Arnold's contract that says, no, Jim, we'll figure this out, but... What does it say? Basically, he's not allowed to do anything else before that movie comes out. Are you fucking kidding me? It's uh, an option in Arnold's contract. They say they're exercising. I've been trying to fix this, but it's straight from Dino himself. He says they have Arnold to the end of this year to film a sequel, and he can't do anything else until after that. That is one hell of a deal. Well, they want to build a franchise around him. Fuck. I'm so sorry, Jim. Do we recast? Well, we can't recast this late, and, and Arnold's been doing weapon training for months for this, so... So we delay filming. I... I guess we have to. They'll wrap this time next year, so we can start a couple weeks after. In one afternoon, all momentum James and Gail had grown from the seed of an idea came to a soul-crushing halt. Damn it. I know. <sighs> you know, this Hollywood thing is a real bitch. In the months that followed, James Terminator's script had taken on a life of its own around Hollywood continuing to build interest in gossip even after its sale. Two producers, David Geiler and Walter Hill, were impressed enough they set a meeting with James to discuss him writing a futuristic version of Spartacus, set in space. It wasn't a great fit. Well, thank you for coming in, Jim. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Maybe there's something else we can work on in the future. Just as James was walking toward the door... Maybe this alien sequel, Walter? Oh, yeah. Jim, you've seen Alien. James spun around. It's one of my favorites. Really? Well, we're looking to do a sequel. A sequel had been long anticipated, but these producers were concerned about watering down the original with a subpar second film. Do you guys have a script? We have a basic story. An outline, really. Well, let me see. Oh, here it is. Huh. It's real short, just a summary. You want to just read that? Might as well. Ah, sure. It's nothing yet, really. It's just two lines. The Marines are sent in to investigate a space colony. And then, Jim, you like this. It says, and then some bullshit happens. <laughs> That's what it says. That's it. That's the sequel so far. It's been like this for years. James saw an opportunity. Uh, well, listen. Uh, let me put something together. Oh, just, just, just something short, you know? I'm a huge fan of the first one, so I want to really honor that. So I'd love to take a crack at it. Okay, sure. James would disappear for several days, adapting some scenes from a story he'd already written, titled Mother. He put a picture of actress Sigourney Weaver, who played Ripley in the original, by his desk as he wrote. For 57 years, Ripley's body has been floating in space. Asleep in a pod. After being found, she agrees to join a group of Marines on a rescue mission to a base on the same planet 
that has stopped responding. They find only one human survivor, a young girl, and must confront the hundreds of aliens that have invaded the colony. As her crew is killed, Ripley realizes she is the last chance they have to finally kill the alien queen and put an end to the species. He didn't answer calls, didn't leave his apartment, furiously writing and rewriting a 42-page treatment. A sci-fi thriller written for a female protagonist, a first. James titled this story Aliens, and the producers immediately hired him to write the full script. They'd consider letting him direct it as well, but only on one condition, that James would first prove himself by making The Terminator a box office hit. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Action! On the next episode of Blockbuster, The Terminator begins filming. Cut! Let's do it again and runs out of money. Walk forward to the station wagon and punch out the window. Punch it out? Just just give it your best shot. James and Gail face their first hurdle as a couple. I think we need to think this through. What do you mean? And James orchestrates an elaborate plan to win over a studio. Jim, just hold on. I gotta tell you, I, I, I don't think it's meant to be. Whoa, whoa. That's coming up on episode five of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. I'm the sound designer Peter Bavitz. I'm composer Fernando Arroyo Lascurain. And this is our creator chat about episode four you just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. We start this episode with uh, the story of another up-and-coming legend, Ridley Scott, and he decides he's going to go see Star Wars with his producer, David Putnam, and Ridley has a very similar reaction to what James had in realizing the whole cinematic landscape has just changed. So he shelves his next movie and decides he's going to do the space horror movie Alien. And, of course, by the end of this episode, we learn James is being given a chance to write a long-anticipated oh, sequel. Yeah. And I guess it shows the power of the art form, which is film. Yep. Because mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting how others, how different people's films can inspire others. And all these are brilliant filmmakers, right, from Spielberg, Lucas, um, to Ridley, to James Cameron, and they inspire each other. So it just makes the whole film experience and the film as the art form so much more powerful just because they learn from each other. And at the time, 1979, it was Randy and James in their local movie theater watching Alien. Think about it. Yep. And (laughs) who would have guessed? Both of them, James and Randy, would be involved in the sequel. And just a few years after it, that, That's pretty interesting. Fernando, this is also an episode where you begin to introduce a more 1980s sound to the score. Yeah, as we were developing the idea of uh, the different stages of James's career, we thought of maybe traveling into that synth uh, time of the 80s scores a little bit mm-hmm. during the Terminator. I started to introduce it as James has his nightmare in the previous episode that really sparks the idea for Terminator. Right. 
And then later, we haven't really introduced much of it. And the main idea of the scenes until he meets Arnold and Arnold comes up with this, how this character should be played. We are kind of hinting at that sound from the last episode. Yes. We didn't talk about it last week, but it was there. Yeah, it was definitely there, especially during the nightmare scene. It's in the second part of the nightmare scene. We can really start to hear the synths coming in. One of my favorite parts of this cue, it grows, it builds. Mm -hmm. As James is meeting Arnold and the Terminator starts to get this momentum, this was one of those one of those first musical cues when I just thought like, oh, they, I wish this could go on for like five <laughs> more minutes because uh, oh, yeah. it's just such a cool sound. In this season, we have such a palette of different flavors of music, mm -hmm. right? Because of all these different movies, they, they're actually different stylistically. So, I mean, Fernando, it's not an easy task you have, right? To have all these different flavors of music happening in, in, in all these episodes. Yeah, exactly. But it's been actually pretty fun because through the use of certain uh, little signifiers, like some high string harmonic short notes that I've used in several cues throughout the episodes, including in the warm sequence and episode two, and even here, as the queue develops, I've tried to do with these little nuggets, keep that through line, even as the styles of the cues and the score has changed. And uh, one of the, the revelations that we had, I guess it's not a revelation. This has been reported for years, but um, O.J. Simpson being considered it for the Terminator. It was a revelation to me. I had no idea. <laughs> me neither. It'll probably be a revelation to a lot of people, and it's totally true. Some of them at the studio really wanted him, but they, they couldn't, not enough people there could see him as a killer. And of course, he would be at the center of that uh, famous murder investigation in the 1990s. But at the time, he was doing comedies, and he was doing, yeah. you know, I think Hertz commercials. He did some very famous commercials. Really one of the most beloved athletes uh, of all time. The more yeah. you know. And, and James and Gail had a second chance to cast him too, right? Because... Uh, yep. The scene at the very end of this episode, they realize that Arnold is unavailable for nine months. I mean, yep. first of all, put yourself in that in their shoes, and they have a chance to recast, and and they you know they could go back to OJ, that they initially considered for the part, and but they decide no, they decide that Arnold is the right guy, and they're definitely gonna wait for him. Just another testament to James's vision, and hmm. you know. And I also want to mention how instrumental Gail Ann Heard was at this point. You know, this is an episode where James and Gail not only reconnect, but they begin working very closely with each other to the extent that, you know, they're soon dating. And uh, and they really are starting to, to put their trust in each other um, yeah. in that kind of producer-director relationship um, and trying to make this movie happen. Yeah, and it goes further because essentially James uh, wants Gail to be by his side as a producer to basically convince some studio to let him direct the movie. And in turn, Gail says that she'll stick with him, the writer-director, no matter what. Uh, and it speaks to the trust they had to each other, that, you know, the continued development of each other and their relationship, which everyone's going to uh, hear on this podcast for the next couple episodes, how they grow bond together. And uh, how they're tested by everything yeah. being postponed. Mm -hmm. And then then what happens next in the next episode? <laughs> we'll be back next week, of course, to talk about episode five. And uh, we hope you're enjoying our bonus interview series as well um, mm. with the real people from this story. We'll have more of those coming soon as well. Uh, but mm. for now, for all of us here, Fernando Arroyo Lascarain and Peter Bavietz, I'm Matt Schrader. Thanks for listening, and uh, be sure to Thank rate you. and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. 
Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod. Or visit us online to support the creators at GetBlockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.